Good morning, everyone. Um, if you want to follow along with me, it's on page 1671. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up and those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. <clears throat> she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went to them and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the windows, or all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known at all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Thanks. Hey, everybody. I'm glad that Jill clarified um, the kind of leave I was on. I've had some people come to me and say, so do you feel like rested from your sabbatical and like really close to God stuff? And I, and I try to keep telling people, it was family leave. I'm annoyed and exhausted. <laughs> but I feel closer to my children and wife. Um, so anyway. One of the things that comes out over and over again in the book of, of Acts, one of the things that's the loudest is the miracles, right? I mean, that's one of the things that stands out in this passage is that, oh, by the way, if you recognize the sweater, it probably is yours. It's the lost and found item of this week. <laughs> Just wait till after to come get it. Um, Yeah, so like you read through Acts and there's just tons of miracles. You know, people are speaking in tongues and people are getting healed and people are like all kinds of stuff. And this one, I mean, it just seems like Peter is prancing through the semi-desert doing miracles everywhere he goes. You know, what's a little death? You know? And um, one of the things that it overshadows is a quieter line that runs all the way through the book of Acts. And it, you tend to see it when you get tired of reading the miracle stories. You like kind of get old and cynical reading the Bible. And you're, and you like, you've read the miracle stories like a hundred times. And you're like, there's got to be something else here. And one of the things that you begin to see is how the miracles are these sort of momentary points between a much larger web of God's providential working throughout the whole book of Acts. Um, I mean, 
one of the things that's really good to do, especially in narrative books, is to look at the, at, you know, at the geography of things sometimes, because, he, because here's what happens, right? Peter normally is here in Jerusalem, right? And Judea is kind of like Jewish central, right? And so he's going through these places, sort of Jewish countryside, and he goes to Lydda to be with some people there, right? And there's a guy there who's a paralytic, and he heals him. And that's pretty great. It says lots of people hear about it, and lots of people come to Jesus. Super awesome. And then, because Lydda is kind of really close to Joppa, when this woman named Tabitha dies in Joppa, they've already heard that, you know, Peter's right over there. And they're like, let's go send for Peter. So they send for Peter, and he comes to Joppa. And, you know, who doesn't want to go to the beach, right? And so <coughs> Peter goes up to Joppa, and I'm not sure they tell him why he's coming until he gets there, right? I mean, they just, they just kind of send for him. And then they say, hey, this lady's dead, but she's awesome. And they have all these widows there that are like, yeah, we're really sad, and we're widows. And, and so, you know, Peter's kind of stuck. And so, I mean, what can he do? So he raises her from the dead. He, you know, Jesus helps him mostly. He does most of the heavy lifting in those scenarios. And— <coughs> So this woman comes to life, and you're kind of like, what a really interesting story about God's power. Isn't it great that God does miraculous things, or did an act, and let's all be depressed now? And one of the questions that I think is important to ask whenever you look at um, passages like this, especially in books that are narratives, is why is this passage here? Right? Like, if you go to the beginning of Acts— um, the Holy Spirit has inspired Luke to say, this is the story I'm telling. I'm telling the story of people sharing the message about Jesus' redemption, starting in this city called Jerusalem, and then going out into this area called Judea around it, and then going into Samaria, that place in pink right above it, and then going out all the way to the very ends of the earth. That's the story I'm telling. And so the first seven chapters or so, he tells the story about the gospel going out in Judea. And then— a lot of that is super miraculous. And then through this work of providence, Stephen gets killed and there's this persecution and the Christians get scattered everywhere, right? No miracle there, mostly just somebody getting killed. But through God's providence, his working towards his own ends and his creation, a multiple of people hear about Jesus in Judea and Samaria all over the place, right? And so you get this sense in chapter 8, you're like, oh, we're in the Samaria and Judea section. And so Luke tells about Philip and other people going to Judea and into Samaria and sharing the gospel there too. And people are like, wow, the gospel is going to Judea and Samaria. And then kind of, it could feel sort of out of the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden in chapter 9, he drops Saul on us. Did you notice that? You're reading along, it's Philip. And then all of a sudden, we're back to the Saul guy who was there when Stephen got killed. And we haven't really said much more about him. And now he's getting, like, warrants to arrest people in Syria. What does Syria have to do with this? And then off he goes, and then Jesus knocks him off his horse, and he becomes a Christian, and blah, blah, blah. And then we're back to Judea. What's going on? Why is this here? And see, if you just think in terms of miracles— it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. It doesn't make bad sense, but it kind of feels like somebody missed a storyboarding meeting. You know what I mean? <clears throat> but here's why. Because the point actually isn't the miracles. The point is the providence. The point isn't so much that this woman is being raised from the dead or this paralytic is being healed. 
But God is actually setting something up through these miracles that is different than the miracles themselves. In a a few months' time from when this happened, probably, some Christians were finally going to make it to a place called Antioch. Up north, different country, different region. And when they get there, they're going to decide it's that they're going to tell all the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, about Jesus. And in chapter 9, when this guy Saul got converted, God tells Ananias, the Jewish guy he sends, to tell him how to follow Jesus. He says, you go to the—because Ananias is like, this guy kills Christians, and I don't really want to go talk to him. And God's statement to him is not, you won't get killed, but he says, you go because this man is my—I don't know if you remember the verse. It's verse 15. My chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. So you see, God has already picked his person to send to the Gentiles. Christians are going to naturally start sharing the gospel with Gentiles in Antioch. And meanwhile, the whole rest of the church hasn't even gotten the picture yet that Gentiles are even going to be part of this and become Christians. And so this whole thing is getting set up for leadership schism and conflagration in terms of unity. Because Paul, if, if Paul or Saul, who's going to be called Paul, goes to Jerusalem and he gets totally rejected and he becomes his own leader of one group and Peter becomes his leader of another group and then the Jewish Christians don't think there should be Christian Christians or G- Gentile Christians, then just, all you get is... But if you read carefully through chapter 8 and chapter 9, you see God's little act of providence to create one church. Reconciled from among all ethnicities, groups, and languages to make one church. And the first step of that was that when he saves Paul and Paul comes back to Jerusalem and nobody wants to talk to him because he's a crazy Christian killer, there was this one guy who through some strange providence was still in Jerusalem, even though it says in the Bible that everybody but the apostles left Jerusalem, this guy Barnabas was still there, who's not an apostle. And it may be because his little cousin John Mark was there, whose mother was a widow. We don't even know, but it might have to do with sort of socioeconomic issues, the widowhood and his little cousin and family things that he had to come back to Jerusalem for. We have no idea what the providences were specifically in his life, but it could be related to some of the family things we know about, right? And he was the guy, the guy whose name means son of encouragement, his actual name is Joseph, right? He was the guy who realized Paul was the real deal and brought him to the apostles and made that connection so that there wasn't a schism in leadership at the beginning. And now God is taking Peter from Jerusalem into Judea, up to Lydda, and then up And then up to the very last stop at the seashore before you go into pagan Samaria. Because the place he wants to get him is right there. Pagan Central, Caesarea Maritima. And who doesn't want to stay a few days with the tanner who lives by the sea? Am I right? The tanning smells a little iffy, but the sea is legit, right? And so there he is. And in chapter 10, we find out that God is going to speak to Peter and God is going to speak to Cornelius, a guy in Caesarea Maritima, and they're going to meet. And all of this is setting up all of that. And Peter has no idea what's happening. But God in his providence, God working in the sustaining and arranging in creation to come to the ends which he desires— is what he's always doing. 
And his people who are obedient, even if they're totally oblivious to what he's doing, are still flowing in the current of it, like Peter is. But God also shows his providence to us in pieces and parts, so that if we have a discerning heart to see what he's doing, we can actually flow in the current of what he's doing, or we can do the dance of providence with him in a way that opens up even more doors to be fruitful. So this morning what I want to do is um, first recognize that, you know, we, we miss providence probably worse in our life than we do read over it when we read the book of Acts. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, some of it is that just like we see out of our own head and our perspective is super small, and so we just don't see the big picture. Some of it is we've all, those of us who believe in God feel like we should have been able to read providence. Like if God is there and he's like providentially ruling over all things, things would look more like the way we would think God would do them. And so we, get, we can get really discouraged and stop paying attention to providence because we might be really bad at interpreting it and have found out that that's the case in previous moments of our life, or some of it is just frankly just our attitude. The natural human attitude is is that we acclimate to what we think is normal, and we tend to pay attention more to what's not working right, which tends to give us really bad attitudes about the way things are going. So while I was on family leave, not only was that like, oh, spend time with your family, it's do all the projects that have been laying around for four years, right? And I did like 25 little projects around my house, but there were two of them that had ghosts. Right? So I don't know if some of you have like, you know, the invisible dog fence around your house? So being the really smart person that I am, I put in the invisible dog fence right when we moved into our house. And then around the edges of our property, I put in a garden, a raspberry patch, an asparagus patch, trees, and all kinds of things where you dig into the ground where the wire is. <clears throat> and so after the second citation from the city of our dog going and playing with other people, um, I'm like trying to find out how to make this thing work, and I'll like get it to work, and it'll do the little green light, hey, things are great, and then you walk away, do nothing, and come back, and it's blinking red and alarming, and I just, there was this one point where I almost literally broke down into tears. I thought I had it, I didn't have it. I thought I had it, I didn't have it. It's and then another one was, is my mom has this little water effect that we put in when she built her addition, and it's just a little pond. That's all it is, but it doesn't work because some little thing went wrong with it, and I thought, oh, surely I can fix this, and so I, I'll put in this little pond, and Jude and I can put, like, muskies in there, and it'll be really fun, and so <clears throat> I put in this, like, you know, this plastic pond, and I'm trying to get this waterfall thing to work, and there's these whatever, and no matter what I do, I will turn this thing on, and the water level will start going down. And I have bought new liners, and I've dug out things. There was one night, there were like seven guys at my house from church, like were in mud up to here, like putting in this thing. It was crazy. And like the last, yesterday I ran it, and it looked, worked fine. So I ran it for an hour, and after an hour, it lost like two inches, and I'm like, I am going to jump off my house. But here's the thing about that, spiritually speaking. I did a whole bunch of stuff that worked fine. But you know what happened? The minute something works fine, do you know what people normally do? Is they forget about it. It went fine. The things that stay on our minds are the things that don't work. 
the problems, the open-ended loops. And so those problems and open-ended loops take a disproportionate amount of our thinking and psychology, and so we tend to think that things are going a lot worse than they actually are, which, frankly, for a lot of us Americans, our lives are actually little dream houses in which we complain about things like, well, I can't believe the kale isn't fresher and they should have heirloom tomatoes. It's August, for heaven's sake. You know? And so, it's a natural part of our psychology to be hung up on the things that aren't working well and therefore to think things aren't going well and to not be in a place of thankfulness and our expectations get loaded to what we think we should expect and whenever those expectations aren't met, we get frustrated or even if it's in the lower half of those expectations, we're not particularly thankful. But to really feel like these are going great and God's probably involved, it's got to be going awesome. So like, if you, I drew this little picture for you. If you think of the range of expectations that we think of are basically like what you can expect, like anything below about the middle of that, we're like, why aren't things going better? All the way to like terrible and worse. Well, worse than we expect. The problem is most of our life is generally there, or at least our perception, because we tend to think about the open loops and the things that aren't going well. So our perceiving, our mental psychological perceiving, the majority of it is below that line of dissatisfaction, which creates fear, anger, rage, anxiety, gloom, etc. And in order for us to be like, oh, this is awesome, things don't have to be above the 50 median line. They have to be going really well. Like, if you're Jerry Hohausen and you go out to Lake Mendota to fish for yellow perch, like, at what point are you like, whoa? You know, if you go out there and you're like, I think I'll catch between 6 and 12. If you catch 6, it's kind of like, eh, didn't go that well, right? If you catch three, it went bad. You know, if you catch 20, you're like, I think I picked a good spot, right? Because every time things go well, who gets credit for that? We do. It's kind of like the, the secular scientific people who are everything good ever accomplished in the history of the world or everything that went well, somehow we, man, did that. And anything that went bad, God should have made that stop. You know what I mean? It's, it's that kind of mentality. It's like, oh, I caught 20 that exceeded my expectations. I must have picked a good spot. Right? Or, oh, that low pressure system is coming in. Like, at some point, like after the 120th fish, you're like, oh my gosh, I think Jesus is here. You know what I mean? And it's—here's what I want you to realize about that. It's not logic. There's nothing rational about that. Our general feelings of unthankfulness or frustration or why aren't things going well? Why isn't God's providence better? Why isn't it clear? Our brains trick us into thinking that it's sheer rationality. But it's really our pride, our skewed perspective, and it's a bug. It's not reality. But what it causes us to do is to assume that attending to providence, looking to see what God is doing, walking in obedient relationship to the providence that we believe is there, that all of that must be silly. And so instead, we, we look to what we can manage and what procedural expectations we can engage in our life to get the outcomes that we want. So this morning, what I want to do is go through one fake and four, or in three real applications of how to look at this. The first is the fake application, and that is, like, if you would go to probably a lot of churches in America— one of the applications of this and many other passages of the Bible would be something like, God has something bigger for you. God has something bigger for you. Wherever you are right now, 
Imagine something bigger. Because God has something bigger for you. Think about where, what happened to Peter. Peter's in Jerusalem. Big things are happening there. He goes out to Lydda. There's a guy who's paralyzed. That's bad. That's incurable. And Jesus works. Boom. Heals him. That guy's up and rolling. And then he goes from Lydda to Joppa. And there's a woman there who is dead. It's just a step up from paralytic. And Jesus works. And she's healed. And it's awesome. And then... Somebody comes in chapters 10 and 11, and you go and unleash the gospel to multi-continents and all nations. Boom, boom, boom. God has something bigger for Peter. God has something bigger for you. Now, that's—it's not that that's categorically false. There are some of us for whom God does have something in some—by de- some definition that's bigger. I'm not sure anywhere in Scripture we're called to seek the bigger— we're, we're called to seek fruitfulness. That's kind of bigger. But the problem is, is that it's not categorically true. You can't tell a room full of people that must be true about them. It's not. For a lot of us, it, God may have something in some way smaller. And see, the reason it's morally wrong for me to say God has something bigger for you is because it's always morally wrong to miscalibrate people's expectations of God because it draws them away from him. But I used to feel like pastors that said that, that I, like, I really wanted to hit them with a laptop. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of, sometimes some very prominent people who talk like that, and I'm just like, if I could just get a minute alone with them, with a laptop, I could get it up to here before they knew anything was happening. Just boom! You know? Be like, don't say that! And then last week I was listening to an interview um, of a pastor who— has been through some deeper waters. And he's like, yeah, you know, I picked on this guy. He was, very, he was a very public pastor. He said, I used to say a lot of things negative about Joel Osteen. I, I just, I'm not going to talk negative about Pastor Olstein. And I'm like, I think I would like to punch Pastor. But here's what I realized. Because I, I listened, I was like, huh, I should really consider that. And then here, here's, what I, here's what I came to about that. It has to do with the church I, pa- I pastor and the church I don't pastor. You see, if I pastored a church that was primarily made up of people who had had their capacities crushed their whole lives, right? If I was in a place where most of the people who came to the church had been poor their whole lives, had been in very protracted families their whole lives, didn't have much education, and most of the obstacles in their life were from the outside of them crushing in on them, and they didn't feel like they had any resources, then their, in, their actual human potential had been so broken down by their experience that if they became themselves in Christ, bigger things would happen in their life. And so therefore, in that context, pastorally one could say— I don't think you can say it from this passage and argue this passage teaches it, but you could say pastorally, God has something bigger for you. And in that sense, in relationship to our sanctification, our growth in Christ, if you become more like Jesus, that is by definition Christianly bigger than whatever you're experiencing. There is more sanctification for you to experience, more closeness to Christ, more reality in the gospel, and therefore God does have something bigger for you. That's not what this passage teaches. What what this passage teaches is that God has something big for his creation. 
It is the redemption that comes through Jesus crucified and risen, redeeming all people of all tongues, tribes, and nations, and he will have it for himself, and he will have it for all creation, and he will bring it about through means miraculous or providential. It will happen, and you can be part of it. You can be yourself a recipient of that redemption, Forgiveness, connection with God, and dwelling of God the Holy Spirit, released into a totally different future, a place of forgetting to a particularly broken, perhaps, path, and released into that redemption, and you can be part of that redemption, then going on to others, which is God's plan for you. That is the big message. Now, in terms of the, the, the applications directly for us, one is, is that we need to recognize that seeing and responding to God's providence is actually a really big part of the Christian life. It's not a small part. It's a big part. And the first thing we could recognize is we can take a little comfort and know that God utilizes obedient faith to accomplish his plan. Okay? What that means is this. You can be totally oblivious to what God is doing, and God can use you. That's what that means. You don't actually have to know God's plan to be in his favorable providence and walking in the plan of what he's working in his creation. You can be totally oblivious if you do what he tells you to do. You can. He uses obedient people all the time. In fact, there's no evidence in this passage in Acts that Peter actually knew what was going on. He was going through Judea, and he was just trying to do good in the gospel. He got to Lydda, and there was somebody to be healed. He felt led or power to do it. He prayed for that person. They were healed. He did other things too. Apparently he led up a lot of people to Jesus who found out about that. Then somebody came and asked him to come to Lydda. And he said, okay. They showed him a dead woman. He was like, and he either, he felt the leading and power for her to be raised. And so he raised her. And then people came to Jesus over it. And those widows continued to be taken care of. And Tabitha, had an enormously powerful witness for the gospel, apparently, and that continued to spread through that area. Imagine a woman that good, always doing good and helping the poor, with a group of widows around her showing the clothing she'd woven from the things that she had done, and then that woman being raised from the dead, right? Bringing that level of notoriety to that quality of character. That's really neat. And Peter, at the end of this passage, is hanging out with a guy who's a tanner, having a short holiday by the sea, for all that we know, scraping fat off of skins so that they can go in the roaster, just because that's what's next. He has no idea. A few days later, he's going to have a vision. Somebody in Caesarea Maritima is going to have a vision. They're going to get connected, and the entire ministry to the Gentile world is going to get launched. He doesn't know any of that. All he's doing is just doing what is what today is. One of the difficulties that people have with that, though, is, is that we, we can really misunderstand providence. And when we misunderstand providence, skeptically, it tends to lead to, like, to refusing to trust God. And when Christians misunderstand providence, it tends to lead to, um, to being distraught and discouraged, right? Providence does not mean 
that God can do anything and is somehow toying with all of us. In fact, it doesn't even mean that God can do anything. And it's important for us to recognize that because once you realize that that is not what the doctrine of providence means, the whole argument from the problem of evil begins to fall apart and sound like philosophical sophistry, right? Let me try to explain what that means. Christians have never believed that God's providence means that God is not constrained by his own self-limitations or necessary truths. So, little philosophy lesson, sorry about this. A necessary truth is a truth that's true in and of itself. It simply can't be false. As opposed to a contingent truth, which is true because it's true, right? So if I say Mark Otto is here, that's a contingent truth. It's true because he's actually here. But if I say there are no married bachelors— That requires no proof. It simply has to be true. Bachelors can't be married, so there are no married bachelors. Period. Right? There are no square circles. Right? One is not two. You cannot be maximally good all the time and maximally evil all the time. There are certain fundamental necessary contradictions that are necessarily true. Otherwise, Christians and atheists could both be right. God could exist and not exist at the same time. The concept that God is good would have no meaning because God could be good and evil at the same time. The necessary realities of necessary philosophical truths constrain all of reality because they restrain what is even what is possible even when one is omnipotent. But in addition to that, God has chosen through his own omniscient values certain self-limitations, which are the way he will do things. So, for example, there's a certain amount of divine hiddenness that God has apparently chosen to function in at this period in salvation history, right? If, if that wasn't true, then God would be giving this sermon, not me, which you would appreciate. But that's just not the way it is. For reasons that God has not entirely disclosed to us, God has chosen to be predominantly hidden in human experience at this period of human existence. Now, you can be like, no, I talked to God. I talked to God this morning. Yes, you did, and it was not like you talked to your wife. They're not the same thing. That's not to say that God is maximally hidden and has left no evidence of himself and is not present at all. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that he's more hidden than you would think, and that is how God has chosen to function. And there are many other things. For example, God has chosen to retain a world in which humans can be held responsible for their actions and choices. All through the Bible, the Bible constantly says, you are responsible for what you do and the choices you make. It does not matter what's happened to to you. Those make certain things more understandable. It may lessen the amount of penalty for the wrong. But fundamentally, you are responsible for what you do and the choices you make. Human beings are responsible. And so God is interacting with the world in such a way in which that can have legitimacy and meaning. There are ways in which God could interact with the world in which us being responsible for what we do would have no fundamental moral meaning. He's chosen not to. And we have no idea how many self-limitations God has put on himself in his works of providence because of what he values and what he's bringing about in his creation. So when somebody spouts off the old, 
If God is maximally powerful and maximally good, there would be no evil. That is revelationally poppycock and sophistry. That's not what we mean by all-powerful or what we mean by all-loving or by how those two interact in the self-revelation of God. The whole thing is a trap set up and it doesn't work. And you'll understand that and it won't have emotional freight with you if you understand the true doctrine of the providence of God. Millard Erickson defined it this way. He said, Providence means the continuing action of God by which he preserves in existence the creation which he has brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes. It doesn't mean that he can, and by can I don't mean he doesn't have the potency to. What I mean is that in the wisdom of his own counsel, he cannot. So you could say, well, why couldn't so-and-so get over his addiction? Why couldn't God just do that? I don't answer that question. There's no way a human being can know the answer to that question. But the doctrine of providence states that any, any good that God does not do is either a misunderstanding, that is, it's not a good, or there is some valid reason of God's self-limitation in his own purposes or the imposition of a necessary truth that makes it impossible. And the, the calculus of that philosophically is infinitely complicated, which is why I always think it is hilarious when people are like, if God is good and God is loving, then there's, and there shouldn't be evil, boom, that's it. I mean, that, that reminds me of a kindergarten argument. If you understand the Christian doctrines about who God is on their own terms, if all we knew about God were those two propositions, then maybe that argument would work. But we have a much more textured understanding panoply of how God self-limits and understands and interacts with his own creation, what he's working towards and how he's working towards it. That, that just doesn't work. But it, that should comfort us dramatically in our understanding that God is working for his redemptive ends. He's working through us through obedience, and we can work with him even more if we will have some discernment about what he's doing. Sorry if that was kind of thick for some of you. Uh, there were probably other people in the room who needed some of it. The significance of, of all that would be for us that God's pro God provides for us through his providence. I mean, that's part of the root word of providence, right? God wants to and will provide for those who trust and believe in him. But you got to be careful about your assumptions about how he's going to provide and what he's going to provide. Right? You might want something to get easier in your life, but what you might need is a mentor. And so when Bill walks into your life, that doesn't look like an answer of providence for your actual dramatic need because that problem at work isn't getting better. What you need is a mentor so that you can be a different person when you deal with that problem at work so that you can make it better. And so one of the realities is you have to trust that God will bring into your life providentially what you need, but you also have to trust that it may be totally different than you thought. You may be in Lydda for totally different reasons than you expected. And so you've got to keep your eyes much more broadly open because otherwise you basically think you know God's plan, and that is a very dangerous place to be emotionally. Does that make sense? Also, God works through obedient, through obedient and discernment, the discernment of his people. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. And we are supposed to interface with providence through obedience and discernment. Whenever we obey God, we are positively interfacing with his providence. But we can actually do more than that. 
we can actually grow in what the Bible calls discernment. So we can see something of his providence, right? That is, that God lays out his providence in parts and pieces. You and I will always be frustrated that we don't see everything, okay? Most people have a, have a all-or-nothing view of providence. They feel like they should see what God is doing, or they sh- or some people think there's no way we could see anything because there isn't a God. But what happened, what, how God reveals himself, how he speaks and shows himself, is that God will show us in the functioning of what's happening in the providences of our life, parts and pieces which are enough for us to make decisions about what we are going to do. It's enough to know Peter should go from Lydda to Joppa, but not enough to know what he's doing afterwards. Oftentimes we get really frustrated that providences can be so narrow. We want to know what's happening in the long term. Ultimately what we want to know is that it's going to work out. And if we knew the end, then we knew it was going to work out and we could feel comforted. We feel comforted because a providential God loves and cares for us. He will provide for us in life or in death. That is where our comfort comes from. If God reveals too much of the parts and pieces, the sinfulness of the pride of our human hearts will immediately divert to that for our comfort. The minute we can plan our ends and feel like we can control things working out for ourselves, our hearts and our sinful idolatry will rush to grab that for our comfort rather than trusting the providential God in his person. And so God, out of love, only reveals to us often parts and pieces of providence. I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff on that. Sorry if the pictures looked intriguing. What that means is that we—obedience isn't the only thing needed for us to walk in God's providence positively, but discernment is needed. We have to be able to understand the God that we trust, believe in, are connected to, are owned by, are created for, so that we can do more than just sheerly obey the written command. Now, when, when you think about that, there's a certain level of neurotic approaches to this and lazy approaches. Like some people will be like, look, if God wants me to do something, he can jolly well tell me and that'll be fine and I'll do it. Right? And I'll be like, does that sound lazy and like dismissive to you? And you'll be like, look, there's a gift of prophecy in the Bible. Like clearly if he wanted to tell me something, he could. Okay. But he, there's two problems with that. The first is, is that that is not how God primarily works. Read the Bible. One of God's self-limitations is that he doesn't give unabridged revelation. He gives abridged revelation. The Bible isn't everything you could know about God. Christ didn't stick around long enough to tell us everything we could possibly know about God. When God does reveal prophecy to people, it's usually parts and snippets, unclear how it fits into greater providences, and it has to be discerned and judged, the Bible says. In fact, there's one kind of funny one in Acts. There's this guy named Agabus, who's kind of a big deal on the prophet scene, because in chapter 11, he basically prophesied that a famine would come to the entire known world. And he was right. To put that into meteorological perspective for you, it said on my phone that it was going to thunderstorm intermittently all of last week, so I didn't take my family boating on five perfectly sunny days. Okay? But in chapter 21, Agabus shows back up, and this is what it says. After we, that's Luke, we, the author, and everybody else, had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Paul is Saul from chapter 9, in case you don't know that. Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
right? So Paul's like this big missionary to the Gentiles, and he's like, listen, if you continue to go to Jerusalem, you're going to get tied up, you're going to get thrown in jail, and they're going to hand you over to Gentiles for whatever those pagan people consider justice, right? And so Luke says, when we heard this, so Luke is putting himself in that category, when we heard this, we and all the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's perfectly clear, right? There was a prophecy by a credible prophet that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to jail and you're being handed over to the Gentiles. It's clear that you shouldn't go to Jerusalem, right? And Paul's response is, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see how the prophecy was completely indeterminate? <laughs> it didn't change anything. All it—see, Luke and some of these other people, their first reaction was, oh, God in his providence is giving this prophecy so you won't go to Jerusalem and you won't get arrested. Paul's like, no, God is giving this prophecy so you can know jolly well what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, know that I know it, and know that I don't care. Because I'm willing to be jailed or die for the name of the Lord Jesus, and apparently you need that encouragement. <laughs> Even the prophecy is indeterminate. You still have to discern. You still have to read the providence, right? The neurotic version of this, and I believe that every truly regenerate Christian will go through this at some point, okay? I believe that. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I believe this. I believe that when God the Holy Spirit truly regenerates you, you realize that you no longer belong to yourself in an extraordinarily fundamental way. That your whole life up until that point, you thought you were the captain of your soul, this was your life, right? And maybe that people should butt out of it, right? And then all of a sudden, this revelation comes in that Jesus made you for himself. You belong to him. He gave everything for you. He could ask anything of you. You belong totally to God. Your life was from him and will go back to him. That's it, right? And it settles in, and there's this recognition that maybe the God who could ask anything of you really wants everything of you. And, and it creates, especially among younger people, especially among younger people who are single who don't have any children yet, this, this neurotic moment where you think, well, if I want to give everything to God and I want to belong totally to God, then I should give up everything so that I can belong totally to God. So I should probably be a missionary in China or maybe Afghanistan and be single and poor and maybe sleep on a really hard bed, you know, and build my own coffin. And you know what I mean? Like that's, that's what you get. And so you, you get Christians who have like these very profound poverty doctrines, like we can't have anything nice. We can't, I don't even want to increase my income. Or you, you have people who are like, I have, to, if I really love Jesus, I have to be a missionary or worship leader or a church planner. Because those, those are the professions for people who really love God totally and just want to just bask in his glory. Or I'm going to pray 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. Or like there's just some kind of like neurotic, everything, 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 everything. The problem is, is that God hasn't called you to be a torch. He's called you to be a manager. Right? This, as, at some point, reality dawns on you, and you're like, well, if we all become missionaries, then we're all going to starve. Somebody's got to be a farmer. Right? And if we don't clean anything, we're all going to die of communicable diseases. So somebody's got to be a maid. And if we don't procreate, there won't be any more humans in a little while. 
So somebody's going to have to be a mother, right, of more than two, right, and so on, right? And you begin to realize that most of us are going to have to manage things in life, not burn them to ashes, but hold and use them as managers as though they do belong to Jesus because they do in the reality of all the temptations involved in that. And that if we're going to be a missionary or a church planner, we're going to insert neurotic thing of your church that you might do for the wrong reason, right? The issue really comes down to calling. We need church planners. Are you the one? We need worship leaders. Why do you want to be one? Is it because you want to give everything to Jesus? Like one of the examples I use for this all the time is my brother because he's just such a stark, stark example of this. Came to Jesus in high school, went to um, did a geology degree. Um, one of the summers he went to Kathmandu in Nepal. Nepal seemed like the most Hindu, non-Christian. At that time, it was really persecuting Christians. It was a very difficult place, and he sort of picked that because he just wanted to be the most radical Christian he possibly could be. Just give everything to Jesus, and he figured he'd be single, and he'd be in Nepal, and he'd do something up there. And then in order to do that, he'd gotten this, he said, well, wait, if I get an engineering degree, then there's a lot of stuff I could do at Kathmandu to help people. And so he came to UW for his engineering degree, and he became a civil engineer. And so he thought, well, I probably should get some experience since I've never done any civil engineering in my life, and not just inflicted on them. So he went to Buffalo, and he did a bunch of hydrological civil engineering. But after two years of work, he was so good, he was recruited for a hydrological think tank in Davis, California. And they paid for his PhD, and so he got involved in a church, and they started a college ministry. They had kind of waned, and there were like 12 people in it, and now there's like 250. And so now at like 32, or 40, he just turned 40. Wow, that's time flies. <laughs> at 40, he has, a, he has a master's from here in engineering, a master's in theology from Wheaton, a PhD from UC Davis in engineering, an MA in ecology and evolution, and he does work all over the world with water flows and how they affect fish and insects and sedimentation. And, and he's been to Afghanistan, and he's been to Guyana, and he's been all over the world, and he's pastoring this college ministry of over 200 people, and he's already in the National Engineering Hall of Fame, and they have, you know, 50 high school students over to their house, and his wife cooks for all of them, and he teaches preaching classes. And so the question is, without reference to any liking me at all, is my brother a spiritual sellout? Right? And some of you are like, probably the minority are like, yeah. <laughs> and then a whole lot of, probably the majority of you are like, no. And the answer is you can't know. You can't know. Yeah, so we had a good providence not doing that. Only he can know that. Only God can know that. And even if he, maybe, even if in some level you can say, right, he was supposed, doesn't matter now. Because even if you miss something, if you're seeking wholeheartedly to live in the providential work of God, God blesses obedience. He doesn't throw you out because you missed a sign. The point is, is that both of those approaches need to be put aside, and we need to have a more discerning approach. And the thing is, is that if you want to have a discerning approach, you've, You've got to recognize that, one, Jesus wants you to discern, not just obey. 
He wants you to obey, but in addition to that, he says in John 15 to his followers, he says, listen, I haven't just called you servants. Now why, what does servant servant mean to Jesus in that context? Don't load in whatever you want. What does servant mean in that context? He says, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. That's the definition of servant in this context. He said, you're not servants. Not because you're not servants. You are servants. Everywhere else in the Bible says that we're God's servants, right? But he says, I haven't called you servants because you could get the impression from that that you shouldn't know my business. All you can do is obey what I tell you to do. You can't know me or what I'm like or what I'm doing. He said, that's not where I left this. He said, but instead I've called you friends. Now, don't load into that whatever you think friend means. What does friend mean in this context? For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. That's what he means by friend. It's the opposite of servant. In addition to being a servant, but not knowing the master's business, he says the difference is I've invited you into friendship. And what that means is I've told you everything about myself, everything my father is doing. I've chosen you for myself. And then he says, and the reason I've done this is so that I could appoint you to do something that's beyond the simple work of a servant that doesn't know what's going on. So that you could go out and you could bear fruit in the redemptive plan of Jesus. That's the claim. The presumption within that is that God is calling you, if and when you trust in Jesus, to be a discerner of more than just sheer obedience. Because as you grow in Christ, you're going to in some ways not get past, but you'll get pretty good at the like, don't commit adultery commands, you know? Like you won't wake up and be like, okay, today I'm going to try to not commit adultery, not sacrifice a pigeon to Baal, not murder anyone, not steal somebody's car. Like that will not be, I don't know if that's what you're struggling with right now, but there'll be a point where that's not the main focus of what you're as you grow in Christ. And at some point, it will be something like, God, who are you going to bring into my life today? And what do you want me to do? Um, How do I have eyes to see? There's 50 things I could do today. I can only do eight. Which ones should I do? And I know everybody wants to have a little conversational approach with Jesus on that one. And for some of you, that works out great. And for some of you, I think God actually does that with you. Where you're like, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? And Jesus just says, well, I want you to go to Woodman's. And I I mean, like, and that's literally your experience of life. And some of you are just talking to yourselves, and Jesus loves you. And then for a lot of the rest of us, for a lot of the rest of us, God is forming us to read the providences of our day. So we're going to read our Bible, we're going to pray, we're going to seek an internal leading of the Holy Spirit. We're going to understand as much as we can about how God works. We're trying to understand as much as we can about how, how Jesus not only shows us who God, the providential one, works, but also shows us what a human being submitted and working in the providence of God looks like. And we're going to put that together in a Trinitarian way. And we're going to say, if I walk like Jesus, how would I be working and interacting with God's providences in my life? God— What do you want me to do? Is there some way internally the work of the Holy Spirit is leading me? And as I look at what's happening, are there any signals there that I can see and read in that discerning process to know where to go? And can I do it together with other Christians in small group, in mentoring relationships, in the local church? So that we're discerning together. So people who are better at discerning, you're learning from. People who are great at discerning, you can teach others 
people who totally miss it, you've got somebody to be like, I think you might have missed that one, and it's not really God's fault. Now, once you recognize that, you'll recognize that a huge portion of the Christian life is seeing, understanding, and responding to the providence of God. The God who is sustaining all of creation and working for his ends according to his own appointed means, how he has self-limited himself based on his own values towards the ends that he is creating, that you can be part of that, that whenever you obey Jesus and do what Jesus says, you are already positively participating in God's redemptive providence. But even more than that, you can be discerning and you can be somebody who can play in God's band and improvise and do really cool things. And you'll also realize that everything in your life, including your whole past, is under the providences of God in ways that he would use them in the future and do all kinds of things. And most of the things of these providences are things that you can't entirely control. In fact, for a lot of them, even the most powerful people in the world have very little control over them. We're never going to be the providential ones. And so the only way you can really participate in providence is through discernment and faith. Now, my hope is that if you have a heart that has any humility before God in, in that, and if you are persuaded that that is what Scripture teaches in a number of places, including this one, that you'll look at that and you'll be like, that is a really tall order. I mean, I, like, Nick, I'm not on that wavelength at all. Like, I, you, you talk about that, and I am, I'm like, um, ugh. I don't know what we're doing, what we're having for dinner tonight. Okay, I'm not reading any providences. Okay, here's what I want you to know. When Jesus, when the Son became incarnate as a man, Jesus of Nazareth, in his life, he performed everything that you have performed poorly on your behalf. And he did so perfectly. And in his death, he became a substitution for every failure of your life. And one of the things that he performed perfectly with the most beauty was an absolute submission to the providence of God an absolute beauty in the dance of the dynamics of what God was doing, submitting to his providence, and ultimately a willingness to lay down his own life in death, dis even disputing the providence of the cross to a certain extent. Not my will, but your will be done. Recognizing the cross was the providence of God that was next in his own plan and what he was doing, and Jesus perfectly submitted to it. All of my failures— all of them in seeing and responding to the providence of God. All of your failures at any moment, of any time, at any day, no matter how big, no matter how catastrophic the consequence of our failures to see and read and participate and walk with the providence of God were performed perfectly in Christ and paid entirely by him for you in the cross forever. And if you accept that and put your trust in Jesus the Christ, part of the benefits of the new cleansed identity is the wiping away of every failure and every loss of every missed providence. And a setting towards a new goodwill 
even in your future failures where you're just going to screw up. And in addition to it, which, and that should create peace. So if what you've heard is be like, Nick, I, I don't know. Be at peace. If you will submit to and believe in and cling to Jesus and trust him to perform that for you. But in addition to that, in the identity that comes from belonging to Jesus, he has given you the perfect example in his life, death, and resurrection of what it looks like to walk as a human being perfectly submitted and walking in discernment towards the providence of God. You can learn, and I can learn so much from studying the life of Jesus in this, especially in John's gospel, where it's a huge theme. And then there are, I don't know, 200 generations of saints that have lived this out, some of which we hear about in the Bible, some of which we know by other means. And so therefore the motivation for this isn't so that God will like us or that he'll love us or that he'll let something go or that the scale will be properly tipped. The motivation for this is in Christ you are a new creation who belongs to God and God is working providentially towards a maximal redemption of the most people possible through the work and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's created this thing called the church. He's invited you into it, and he wants to do amazing things through you. I don't know if they're bigger or not, but they will be divinely providential. And if you like bigger more than divinely providential, you should stop and to switch those values. Because if you can do the smallest thing, but know that you're dancing or flowing in the current of the providence of God, and the level of fulfillment that you will experience far outstrips any accomplishment you could hope to accomplish, however big it is, what stands to be gained in following the prov- in the providence of God is not your salvation. That stands or, fall with, stands or falls with Jesus. But what does stand to be gained is you living in your new identity. What stands to be gained is the joy of recognizing a providence and walking in it, the excitement of wondering if you're actually doing the right thing or not, and looking to see what will happen, the sense of reality when you see God working, when you just do something pretty normal. The humility that comes when you see that you did this little thing and God did all the heavy lifting and somebody's life was totally changed. The encouragement that comes and the courage that is formed when you see that when you walk in God's providence, God is divinely and powerfully with you. Not necessarily to make you awesome, but to do his own brand of awesome. And when you recognize that for all its good reasons, for its reasons of thankfulness and joy rather than pride and fear, it will propel you in a state of peace and humility to embrace as much as you can of what it means to walk in the providence of God, to look for it, to see it, to discern it, to enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would help us to be people that however you relate to us mystically, which we all seek to have a deeper and more profound mystic relationship with you, to the extent to which you want that, but we pray that our relationship with you would be truly Trinitarian and not just focused on the beautiful things the Holy Spirit does. Help us to see Christ in all his glory 
and to seek to be like him and to also see and look at your providential fatherly acts working in your creation as its sovereign so we can participate. And as those work together in the churning of our lives, as we discern them together in the church, we pray that you'd bring about incredible things. Maybe not bigger, but divine. That's what we want. We pray that you'd help that come to pass in Jesus' name.